0: Well, you all welcome to our Wednesday Night Fellowship. Um, This is something that we get to do every Wednesday night. We just get to spend time together, sing some songs to Jesus, and also hear from God's Word. Uh, We are week two into part two uh, of our series uh, on the Revelation. Last week, I likened the Revelation to a movie called The Edge. Uh, In the movie The Edge, there's a guy, Anthony Hopkins, Alec Baldwin, their characters. They're in a, a small plane that crashes in the Alaskan wilderness. And what they soon discover is that there's a lot that can kill them uh, in the wilderness. It's not just the cold. It's not just their hunger. It's not just their hopelessness or even their stupidity. But there's a bear in there. And not just any bear, a huge Kodiak grizzly bear. And this sort of brings us into part two of that movie, The Edge. If part one of the movie is surviving the elements, part two is surviving the bear. And in a similar way, we find ourselves in uh, in part two of the Revelation. In part one of our series, we learned that we, too, are in a wilderness of sorts. We're living in this in-between time. We've used different analogies to convey this, but living between D-Day and V-E-Day, or to use biblical imagery, between the Exodus and the Promised Land. Right, Thanks to Jesus, no longer in bondage but not in heaven yet either. We're living in this wilderness period. And this is where Jesus finds us. Sometimes in RUF, you'll hear us say, like, Jesus loves you enough to meet you where you're at, and he loves you enough not to leave you there. Right? He meets us in this wilderness, but he's also taking us home. And en route, Jesus speaks to our fears. He speaks to our chaos and our longings. He speaks to the stories that we tell ourselves, stories like we are totally forsaken and no one's going to come to rescue us. He speaks to that story, but he also speaks to the story that everything's fine and we don't need any help. We can make this our home. He challenges and critiques that story as well. You're in the wilderness. Don't get too used to it. He speaks to our suffering, too. This is what Jesus is doing in those early chapters of the Revelation. He's giving us the lay of the land. He's helping us to see where we are at in the the grand scheme of things. And you can think of it this way. He's equipping us and he's outfitting us, giving us what we need so we can survive in the wild. So that we'll have a faith that sees us through. He's pulling back the curtain, showing us what we need to see, adjusting and readjusting our perspective as well as our expectations. And he's doing the same thing now as we shift our focus to those bears in the woods, right? these beasts in the wild that seek to destroy us. Last week, we looked at public enemy number one, which is the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, the Satan. We looked at how he accuses us and he deceives us and he threatens us with harm if we follow Jesus. But as the revelation continues, we see the devil doesn't work alone. He enlists help. And tonight, Jesus is pulling back the curtain or is pulling off the hood of the next enemy, sort of Scooby-Doo style. And he's showing us beast number two. It's this beast rising out of the sea. Now, before we dive into this passage, I think it's important to remind you that the revelation is a symbolic vision and it's not a literal one. There are things that are real, but are often hard to see. This is just true of, of our normal daily experience. God is one of them, but the wind is another. Or capitalism, or love, right? But these things are real, and you just can't really see it. It's not like this sits on a shelf or is behind, you know, paned glass, just because It's an invisible thing, doesn't make it untrue or unreal. Just because it's hard to isolate or pinpoint on a map doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, right? These things do. What the revelation does is that it symbolizes certain realities and personifies them. So what is hard to see is now hard to miss. Does that make sense? Now that we see them, we can respond to them. And as you'll see today, one of the things, one of these forces that are often hard to see because it's so vague or can be so nebulous, one of those things that threatens us is nationalism. That's what this beast represents, nationalism. Nationalism is a real thing, but it's often hard to see. It's hard to pinpoint. It's not just an idea. It's not just a philosophy. It's kind of a current. It's a spirit of the air, vague, nebulous, but real, and what the revelation does is that it gives this vague, shadowy thing a face. It gives it shape. It gives it form. So that we can see it. and So we can resist it. Right? Nationalism can destroy you. It can destroy your life. It can destroy your faith. It can destroy your community. But once you see it, once you notice it, you can resist it and you can fight it. And it's hard to fix what you don't see. Uh, it's hard to defend yourself against something that you're not aware of. And Jesus wants to make you aware of this thing. And so he p- portrays it in such a way that really does grab uh, our attention and sort of hold our imagination. Make sense? Okay. With this in mind, let's answer three questions tonight. We're going to look at this passage again. You've got it in front of you. We're really asking of this passage three questions. Who or what is this beast? I kind of already told you. But how does that threaten us? And what do we need uh, to overcome? Let me just do a little deeper dive on this. Who is this beast? What does it represent? Okay, the beast that comes out of the sea, that we see sort of in verse one, has the body of a leopard, the feet of a bear, the mouth of a lion, and seven heads and ten horns. Okay, the picture that's painted for us is weird, right? Can we just agree? This is weird. And it seems so random, right? What what is this sort of amalgamation of body parts and like animals in the zoo? Like what is going on? Well, all of this imagery is really borrowed uh, from another place in the Bible. Revelation 13 is kind of like a meme, right? Recycling and reusing imagery from one context and putting it in another. So, you know, like Bernie, who we saw sort of sitting there at the inauguration day is now sort of like, I don't know, in a cage match, (laughs) right? Or sitting next to Forrest Gump, eating a box of chocolates. Okay, it's kind of like that, right? We're taking something from an old part of the Bible and we're sort of putting it in in a new place. And we kind of, the original audience Recognize what was going on. We don't, but I'm, trying, I'm going to try to help you see what's happening here. Okay, so this imagery that's getting reused, recycled, comes from an Old Testament book called Daniel. And here's my 30-second sort of highlight reel. Okay, Daniel was an Old Testament prophet. Before he was a prophet, he was a college student at Babylon U. And right out of college, he got an internship. Okay, and he was working for the government. Uh, it was an internship in the king's court, sort of like our White House. Eventually, he lands a cabinet position. He becomes a pretty big deal. One of his special talents is interpreting dreams. And in Daniel chapter 7, he has an important one. He sees four beasts rising out of the sea. That sounds familiar. <laughs> These four beasts, we're told, are representative of four kingdoms that are going to come before the Christ comes. The first beast is like a lion, representing Babylon. The second like a bear, representing Persia. The third, a leopard, representing Greece. And the fourth, representing Rome, is this weird beast with 10 horns. Okay, that's my 32nd pitch. In Daniel's vision, we see four beasts coming out of the sea, but in John, we just see one. And this one is sort of like a composite uh, of the four. It's all four wrapped into one. It's kind of like a Frankenstein monster. And what this means is that the beast that's coming out of the sea is not just any kingdom, it's representative of all of them. Any and all human kingdoms that are going to, that we might encounter in this wilderness time. It's any empire, any nation state that would demand our total allegiance and trust. That's what's being represented here. It's the nation state that says, you need to follow me. You need to worship me. It's the nation state that says... I ought to be first in your life, right? Seek me first, right? In the first century, when John had this vision, the emperor in Rome was a guy named Domitian, and he renamed, sort of rebranded, the Roman Empire, the Eternal Empire, and he demanded that everyone worship him as Lord and God. And here's how this worked. Every now and then, you would be summoned to the temple and you'd be instructed to take a little pinch of incense and you would throw it on the altar and say the words, Caesar is Lord, Caesar Curios. And for most Roman citizens, this Pledge of Allegiance posed no problem at all. However, it posed a huge problem for Christians. Could they respect Caesar? Yes. Could they pay taxes to Caesar? Sure. But should they worship Caesar? The answer to that was no. Right for John and his fellow Christians, there was only one person who deserved that kind of allegiance, right? That kind of loyalty, and it was Jesus, not Caesar, not Rome, not the nation. But the consequences of not worshiping the nation, of giving it your ultimate allegiance were severe. For one, you could be labeled a traitor or an atheist. You might face harassment from the police. Right? You could lose your job, your home, you could lose your reputation, you could lose your life. And many Christians did. They were fed to lions, they were burned at the stake. And the fact that the powers of be could do this, that they could kill with impunity, only seemed to prove their, uh, its invincibility. And the same thing with the the strength of its military, the strength of its culture, the strength of its uh, economy. All of it sort of seemed to prove this thing is invincible. It inspired fear, but it also elicited admiration and worship. Okay, history lessons over. (laughs) What was true of Rome then is very true of America now. Okay, in the vision that John has, we see this beast that's representative of all sort of human kingdoms to come. It's got seven heads. One of its heads is wounded, but it comes back to life, as it were, and it keeps going. The point being, nations are going to rise and fall. Another is always going to take the place of the last one. In the first century, Rome was sort of the head honcho. 20th century later, it's America's turn. Like, we are kind of, uh, the United States is sort of a 21st century Rome. The size of her military, the size of her economy, her worldwide influence, all of it, depending on where you sit or stand, inspires awe or fear, right? hate or worship. Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Nobody. We're the superpower. A few Presidents are going to demand your ultimate allegiance like the mission did. But we did have a president who was pretty obsessed with loyalty. But it's true that presidents of both stripes, on both sides of the aisle, across all the American ages, have uttered haughty and blasphemous words, equating the United States with the kingdom of God and claiming that the U.S. and not Jesus is the savior of the world. Look, time out. I'm an American citizen. Like, I I, I care about our country. And so like, I'm not trying to be me, right? But I'm just trying to like pull back the curtain a little bit here, right? Here are just a few examples. In his inaugural address, Thomas Jefferson referred to the United States as the world's best hope. Abraham Lincoln argued that the unity of the American nation and its form of government is the last best hope of the earth. Woodrow Wilson said, I am glad for one to have lived to see the day that the world knows America as the savior of the world. Donald Trump said, we must keep America first in our hearts and we must always keep faith in America's destiny. That one nation under God must be the hope and the promise and the light and the glory among all the nations of the world. Do you hear what they're saying? Last hope of the world, the, right? The, the glory, right? Among all the nations of the world, right? These are haughty and blasphemous words, right? Equating America as the savior of the world, right? As, as God in some ways. It's sheer and blatant nationalism. And nationalism is not just a Roman problem or an American problem, right? Any nation uh, can be guilty of this, right? Any nation can be guilty of nationalism. Right? Any time a nation has taken on the identity of a savior, it's guilty of nationalism. Uh, Any time a nation demands total allegiance and trust, it's guilty of nationalism. Any time a nation says that your identity, like who you are, um, or your security or your mission in life is to be found not in God, but in the nation and seeking its interests, right? That nation's guilty of nationalism. And nationalism is deadly. It can destroy you, it can destroy your life, it can destroy your faith, and it can destroy your community. And you might think, well, how so? Let me show you just a few ways Point number two, how does this, how does this work? Like how, how does nationalism, how is it so so damaging? Well first, nationalism leads to pride and prejudice. Leads to pride and prejudice. Nationalism says that what makes you, you, or what makes you special is where you come from. It's being Irish or Italian or Nigerian or Chinese or whatever. It makes you unduly proud of where you were born and where you come from. Like, in some ways, unduly proud of your heritage. And because this is elevated to such great importance, and you're like, there's this pride of like, this is who I am. You can see people who share that same sort of nationality. What You begin to sinfully look down on other people who are born someplace else. Who might come from just across the border but because they do they're less than you. Right? They're not as good as you. Nationalism leads to pride and prejudice. And then it leads to injustice. Because once you start looking down at other people of different nations or demonizing them or seeing them as less than human, as less than you are, simply because they Come from a different place, you will tolerate their abuse. Americans would never tolerate other Americans taking kids from their families and throwing them in cages. We would never tolerate that within the United States. But somehow, it's acceptable. It's like it's tolerated for us to do that to people from another nation, simply because they are from Guatemala or Honduras, or Mexico. We accept it. We we tolerate this treatment of other image bearers of God simply because they come from another nation. This is gross injustice. Nationalism leads to injustice, and it leads to blindness and deafness. Nationalism blinds you to the sins of your own country and it's abuses, and it makes you deaf to the cries of the people that your country oppresses. You don't see rightly anymore. You're you're deaf. You don't hear rightly anymore. And this ultimately leads to idolatry and compromise. Because when you tolerate this kind of abuse, or worse, when you condone it in the name of patriotism, you have compromised your faith. You are not following the way of Jesus anymore. You are worshiping something or someone else, but it is not Jesus. You have seriously gone astray. So how do we resist this? And this threat is real, right? It's in the news. You hear about it. Often with Christian in front of it, like talk of Christian nationalism. Those are not just Christians who are nationalists. There's Hindu nationalism and Buddhist nationalism, right? There's, Atheistic countries can be guilty of, of nationalism too, right? It afflicts us all, right? But it's very much in the news because the threat is real. We saw what it looks like on January 6th, right? When a bunch of folks stormed the Capitol. How do we resist this? How do we overcome? Well, verse 10 has our answer. It says, If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with the sword must be slain. This doesn't sound very encouraging. It ends. Here's a call uh, for the endurance and faith of the saints. This is how you overcome. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Okay, this beast that is empire, the nation-state. Sort of this beast that is nationalism in the flesh, as it were. It knows only raw power. It's really concerned with raw power, with violence and the threat of violence. It basks in the roar of the F 35 and in the military parades, right? Uh, and the German shepherds uh, that would snap at the crowds, right? It loves raw power. And when you attack it with raw power, not only do you become more beastly, it responds with more beastliness. Okay, this beast, this enemy cannot be conquered with the sword. You might hit its head, right? But another ones it's going to be healed. Another one's going to sort of grow in its place. It's sort of what verse three is getting at. You cannot beat this thing with a sword, which gets us to this wisdom of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. He said, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. And hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. What is needed to overcome this beast is not a sword, it's not violence, it's not hate, it's endurance and faith. That's what's going to overcome it. When I hear the word endurance, uh, I hear the word perseverance. It's kind of an exercise word to me. Like we have endurance days at Orange Theory Fitness, right? Uh, Endurance days are some of the hardest because it's like, Long-suffering, right? You're having to do things for a long time, sort of at a high intensity. And that's kind of what's being communicated here. Doing something for a long time at high intensity. It kind of means staying the course and not being intimidated and not being dissuaded to keep going. It calls to mind the death of many Christians in the Colosseum, right? Who endured, who, who died singing, And that spectacle seared the conscience of an empire and it essentially led to its collapse. It calls to mind the black men and women who endured fire hoses and dogs and fists and did not hit back in the 50s and 60s and the civil rights movement and how that changed. it, 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 It seared the conscience of our nation and led to huge gains for the civil rights movement, though There's much work that still needs to be done. I think of women like Beth Moore or or, or the man Jamar Tisby, a white woman and a black man, both uh, vocal in their opposition uh, on their opposition to Christian nationalism. And who have recently faced a lot of vitriol and hate sort of folks trolling them on the Internet, a lot of misogynism and racism I don't know about Beth Moore, but certainly Jamar Tisby facing death threats and having their faiths called into question. You know, when you stand up against this, you need endurance. Because there's going to be a backlash. And sometimes it can be mild, like, you know, okay, somebody called me a name, but sometimes it's a much more severe. In certain parts of the world, you know, when you take a stand against the nation, right? You die. There's long suffering. You need endurance, but you also need faith. You can think of this as a race in some ways. Endurance being one foot in front of the other, and faith being sort of this finish line is also sort of the Gatorade that's going to keep you going. But faith in who, right, or faith in what? It's not faith in some generic God of love. That's not what we need. That's not the answer. We have something much better than that. It's faith in Jesus. A a God who becomes a Jew, but who doesn't just love Jewish people. A God who doesn't just love those from the nation of Israel, but who goes out of his way to love all the nations. A God who loves all of those outside of the nation's borders. Who loves his neighbors. Who makes a Samaritan the hero in one of his most famous stories. Uh, A God who builds bridges with the other and who tears down walls that we might erect. A faith in a God like that is what's going to overcome our nationalism. A faith in a God who loves the nation's. Faith in a God who is at work right now, uniting us to himself and also uniting us to one another in one multi ethnic, multinational family of God. Right, that includes people from every tribe, people, language, and nation. A faith like that, and a faith in a God like that, it will dissolve your nationalism. I want to conclude uh, with this vignette. In 2009, I'm bouncing around in what some of us were calling the Barnabas. And the driver was an African name, uh, an African man named Barnabas, so his van became the Barnabus. Okay, we're driving in the Barnabus, and we're driving through the bush uh, in Uganda. All of the seats have been ripped out, so a bunch of us were just sort of sitting on. Like on the floor. And I'm sitting across the way, sort of sitting face to face with this, um, this Ugandan man, uh, I don't know, maybe in his 20s. His name, his, his name was Jimmy, still is Jimmy. And Jimmy is this beautiful, dark skinned uh, Ugandan. He's got this incredible smile. And he looks me in the eye and he says, with this great big smile on his face, we're brothers. I've, I hope I never forget Jimmy saying this to me. For years, um, I had been working for peace, and doing poverty uh, alleviation work in different parts of the world, but I had become totally burned out. But here I was in the Barnabas and the bush of Uganda. And Jimmy says this thing that was somehow so easy for him to say, but it was also so profound. Like because of the faith that we shared in Jesus, we are brothers. Now, on the surface, Jimmy and I have nothing in common. We have different skin color, we speak different languages. We have a totally different education. We come from a totally different sort of family background and upbringing. We're of different class and different nationalities. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. All of it different. And yet, because of Jesus, two people who could not be in some ways further apart are brothers. I read this quote today. He says, You realize, of course, that an American disciple of Jesus Christ has infinitely more in common with a Chinese disciple of Jesus Christ than any two Americans or any two Chinese who don't. You have more, if you are a Christian, you have more in common with a Chinese Christian than you do with like your next door neighbor who doesn't believe in Jesus. Infinitely more in common with that person from a totally different nation. I'm more brothers with Jimmy. (laughs) Jimmy. Than some of the people who live on North Prospect Street, right? Who look like me and speak like me and have the same education as me and vote like me. Like I have more in common with Jimmy than I do with them. I want you to think about this. In the wilderness, this in-between time, there are many things that seek to destroy us, to devour us, to distract us, to divide us, divide us from each other, divide us from within. To make a shipwreck of our faith. And nationalism is one of those things. It is one of those enemies. You got to know your enemy. You got to see it for what it is. Let it capture your imagination here. Know how it works. Know what it does. What it leads to. That injustice, that blindness, that just destroyed heart. But know to Jesus... Put your faith and trust in him. Someone who's not just your savior, but who says you can call me your big brother and who indeed makes a brother and sister of us all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, thank you uh, for bringing this to our attention um, I suspect we all know that this threat is there sort of in the shadows it's it's this thing but we don't it, we don't often take a good long look at it um, and you want us to uh, so that we don't fall prey to it um, Lord would you help us in our fight against nationalism and some of its sort of cousins, you know, racism and, and just the injustice that comes out of that too. Um, Father, give us endurance. Uh, give us faith, faith in a, a God like you, uh, in, in Jesus, who loves the outsider, um, who, though very much a Jew, loved the non-Jew too. They loved us. Uh, right, we, we're we're not of that nation. We're not of like we come from a. All of us here are not from that place. And yet, you love us. And would that change us from the inside out? Would it would it would it change the ways that we think about our own nation? That we would love our neighbors, that we would respect our leaders and serve our country, but that we wouldn't make it first in our life. We wouldn't make it the main thing. Would it be subordinate to you and to your call on our lives and our and the call to love? image bearers who are within our borders, as well as image bearers who are beyond them. And I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.